good to see you. It's nice. I, th- I feel like fall has finally fallen. It's the second or third week in November, which scares me about other things, but hey, I did enjoy those 70-degree days. I've got to admit they were nice. Uh, and, you know, it's particularly nice because, I don't know if you know this, but I'm originally a Chicago boy, so I know a thing or two about cold winters. And so I've actually really appreciated that living here on the East Coast, particularly in Philadelphia, we have four, four, se- four full seasons normally, i.e. winter, spring, summer, and fall. Where I come from, we just have winter and summer. So it's nice to get a little bit of both. Uh, I think uh, fall kind of felt I don't, warm, but that's all right. I'll take it. Um, but Beck and I moved out here from Chicago 14 years ago to start this church. And this type of process, sometimes I refer to it as a startup congregation, um, but around the church world, it's usually referred to as church planting. And I, as we get into our sermon here, and I think this might help set up what we're going to talk about for the next three weeks, I want you to do a little bit of a visual exercise with me. Don't get worried. You don't really have to do much. But it might help you just to close your eyes for a moment. I promise not to make you do anything weird at all. You're not going to have to move or anything. Just close your eyes. And I want you to imagine that you're about to meet the first church planner of the first century. Sit with that for a second. Just imagine that person. What do you expect? You know, maybe you expect a rising star coming up the religious ranks with a newfound faith in Jesus that's turned him away from persecuting the church. It's a very famous early church planner. That was his background. Maybe you expect a famous loudmouthed fisherman who's a little rough around the edges but has spent years in the presence of Jesus. Famous church planner was that guy too. Or maybe you expect more of a quiet and devoted disciple who is sort of less in your face, but is clearly a disciple who loved Jesus. And now imagine that you open your eyes and Jesus himself introduces you to the person who will plant the first church. She's not Jewish. She has bad theology and practice. She has her own version of the Bible. She's not married, although she's living with a man and has been married five times before. She is ethnically, religiously, and morally a complete outsider to the traditional religious community. Yet, after a chance encounter with Jesus at a well, she preaches the gospel to her whole town. And you can read the story in John chapter 4. And God, at least in this instance, seems predisposed, thank you, (laughs) to to engage, to include, and to empower an outsider for her benefit, but also for the benefit of the kingdom of God. And the question we're going to ask in today's sermon series that starts today... (laughs) Is this the exception or the rule? Is this what God normally does? Or is this a blip on the radar that happened once, but we can't really expect to happen too often? You don't have to answer this out loud, but what do you think? Who did you expect? 
So this is what we'll be exploring in this new series that we're entitling Suspicion, Intention, and Inclusion. We're going to follow how God, or more specifically how the people of God, or the people who call themselves by God's name, have engaged outsiders throughout the Bible. And we're going to start in the Hebrew Scriptures. We're going to go through the life and teachings of Jesus and into the early church age. And where we start today with the Hebrew Scriptures... And what Christians often refer to as the Old Testament is going to be challenging. In fact, I have a, re- I have a particularly un- unusual goal this morning. My goal is actually to leave you unsettled. And what we're going to see as we look at the whole Bible is a progression in the way that outsiders are described and treated. It's like a story arc. And as all stories go, there is quite a bit of tension, or else it's not a good story. The best stories don't resolve right away. Some of you might be aware that in a few weeks, a certain movie will be opening in theaters across the country. Anybody have any idea what that movie might be? (laughs) I heard someone go, Star Wars. Yeah, Star Wars. Now, Star Wars is famous for this, and the original three movies, the first trilogy of Star Wars movies, the second movie called Empire Strikes Back has no happy ending. There's no hope, just a little sprinkle of hope, but basically the main hero gets his behind kicked by the main bad guy. There are startling revelations about the family history of our hero. He loses a hand. He finds himself hanging by a thread underneath this cloud city calling out to be rescued. Our heroes are hanging on by a thread. There's no happy ending. There's tension. And at the same time, it's often regarded as the best, most critically acclaimed of all Star Wars movies. There's only one trilogy that's generally considered in movies to be a bigger success or even more well done than the Star Wars ones. And that's another trilogy in fantasy world called The Lord of the Rings. Ever heard of that one? You remember where the first movie of the trilogy ends? Bad news. Our band of heroes, our team, our fellowship of the ring completely disbands. It falls apart. There's dissension in the ranks. And our small hero has to go off on his own. Fortunately for him, taking at least one good friend. Certain people that we cared for very much appear to be dead. It's not fun. It's full of tension. Good stories have tension. Great story arcs have progression. People grow, change, things develop. And this series is a trilogy, if you will, three weeks. And so I don't mind if week one ends with some raised eyebrows, some concerned looks. Because this week we're going to look at some things that will likely make you very uncomfortable, and they should. Some language, some treatment of outsiders will be startling. Perhaps everything you fear about passages from the Old Testament and what they might say about outsiders, we're going to see some of that. And so preparing for this talk, I thought about what I expect when I close my eyes and think of the Old Testament and what it might say about outsiders, and this gentleman came to mind. I don't know if you remember him. There used to be a show on television called The Office, 
And one of the main characters was this guy named Dwight. His last name is Schrute. And I noticed that he had a quote that reminded me of what I might expect in the Old Testament. He says this, Yes, I have decided to shun Andy Bernard for the next three years, which I'm looking forward to. It's an Amish technique. It's like slapping someone with silence. I was shunned from the age of four until my sixth birthday for not saving the excess oil from a can of tuna. So, Dwight's funny, I think. But some of the stories I'm going to share with you when you think of outsiders and things like shunning make me uncomfortable. I don't fully understand them. I can offer some thoughts on how they might make sense, but truthfully, many of them only begin to make sense to me in the overall arc of the story. So as you leave today, I want you to know up front that Darth Vader will still be out there at the end of this sermon. The great fellowship of the ring will be broken. The world will still be dangerous and complicated and full of tension. And that's okay. As stories teach us, tension can be good. It's the greatest place of discovery and growth. Are you game for that? Are you okay leaving, thinking, oh, I don't know about this? I hope in so much tension it'll make you want to come back to hear what happens as opposed to run away. So today we start the journey with the Hebrew Scriptures, and I'm just going to jump right in, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a survey of the Old Testament Scriptures and what they have to say about outsiders and how outsiders were treated, and see what we can learn. And the first thing I think we're going to learn and see is that outsiders are often considered a grave, grave risk. Now this isn't where we're ultimately going to land, but let me tell you that straight up, This is part of the story, and we need to understand this to understand the bigger picture. So let's take a look. Um, The first scripture I want to share with you is from Exodus 34, but it's seen similar things are said in other places. And it says this, Do not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous god. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you, and you will eat their sacrifices." And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. This is a big theme, and what we're going to talk about a little bit to understand what Old Testament is coming from, this idea of marrying outside of ethnic Israel is forbidden in the Old Testament law. And the reason why you can see here is there is this fear that the very essence of the community and who they worship will change if they intermarry. So there's this big thing, don't do it. Also, if you look at the laws that are written about how to treat outsiders, there's some things that might trouble you if you know about them. So first of all, if you're an Israelite, every 40 years there's this cool thing called the year of Jubilee. And if you're in debt to another Israelite, your debt goes away completely. goes back down to zero. You get your land back. Also, if you are an Israelite and you lend money to another Israelite, you are not allowed to charge them interest. And of course, if you're an Israelite, you have the opportunity to become king someday. If you're not, if you're an outsider, if you're from another land and you live in Israel uh, and you have debts at the end of 40 years, too bad. You still have the debts. Uh, Israelites are more than welcome to charge you interest on loans, and there's no way, no way you could ever become king. So there's some restrictions on being an outsider. 
But the tipping point, I really think, is around this issue of marrying so-called outsiders. So in Numbers 25, the people of Israel have gone through this period where they've been kicked out of their land, but they're starting... No, wait, this is Numbers. I'm jumping ahead. This is before all that happens. Ignore what I just said. So the Israel, Israelite people are very up, upset because a plague has hit their land, and they see it as connected to this intermarriage type of situation. And so what happens is one of the leaders of the Israelites comes into camp while everyone's weeping and brings with him a Midianite woman, and they go into their tent together. And when this is seen by Phineas, uh, it says he's full of the zeal of the Lord, and he goes in with a spear, and he spears them both with one throw. And this is seen as and applauded as a good thing that Phineas is zealous for the Lord and standing up for his commands. Does that make you a little uncomfortable? Are my promises coming true? Uh, it gets more uncomfortable. So I would say the climax of an ant, sort of uh, the danger of outsiders uh, happens in the stories of Nehemiah and Ezra. This happens after the Israelites have been sent into exile. They come back to their homeland. They're trying to rebuild and the people who've been there or come out of exile are marrying other people from other ethnic groups around. And Nehemiah is one of the early leaders, and it says this. He says, Moreover, in those days, this is Nehemiah talking, I saw men of Judah who'd married women from Ashad, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashad or the language of other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them, called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons. You are not to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Now that sounds a little uncomfortable, but wait till I read you this. In Ezra, a contemporary of Nehemiah, when he sees this happening, this is a story that happens. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shekinah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now, let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. So, how many of you have had that on one of your Hope Promise cards at the Christian bookstore, that story? How many of you have ever even heard that in a sermon? Because I don't know, and I grew up in a church where my dad was a pastor, so I was there every week. I don't know, I was surprised by this story as a 30-plus-year-old person in seminary finishing my degree and writing my senior thesis. I was like, What? And I had to read it again and again to realize, wow, that, that is the story. And before continuing, I think it's worth pointing out that the harshness of the Israelites' actions towards outsiders, particularly Ezra, may not completely represent the wishes of God. It doesn't say here that the actions represent what God wanted them to do or that he fully endorses them. For example, the actions of Ezra are never endorsed specifically by the Lord. And although intermarriage is distinctly forbidden, 
The demand to divorce foreign wives is not prescribed in the Hebrew law, but rather it's an interpretation of the law that Shekaniah suggests and Ezra enforces. So God himself never prescribes or endorses the mass divorce or sending away of foreign-born women and children, although he doesn't condemn it either. The book literally ends right there. I'm like, where's the next chapter? What happened? It just stops. That, what I read you is the last verse of that book. That being said, I think a fair reading of the above passages certainly paints a picture of stringent and at times very violent exclusion of outsiders from the community of Israel. Are you uncomfortable yet? Okay. Me too. So why such a stand towards outsiders? Well, I think the main concern here, as I read it in these passages and as I look at a wider picture of the Old Testament, is existence. It's important to note that one of the reasons that God is so passionate about the, the, uh, the distinctiveness of Israel is that it's built on the premise that Israel may serve as a light and a blessing to all nations. You can see that in Genesis 12, 18, 22, and 26. It's a repeated theme. And God says to Abraham in those passages, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and through your offspring, all nations, all nations will be blessed. So the concern, at least in part, is that if Israel loses its distinctiveness, or if it ceases to exist, and just blends in with all the peoples around it, that the world will lose its greatest witness to a true God in heaven. And there is, therefore, a somewhat ironic care for outsider nations, even in their exclusion. But that alone, I don't think, is enough to feel comfortable about what we've just read, especially considering that most of us in this room, most, if not all, most of us in this room would be considered the outsiders and foreigners in these stories. That would be you and me for the most part. But the Hebrew scriptures also give us a different picture of outsiders. And that is that outsiders are a rich blessing. So foreigners were meant to be treated with justice. So in Leviticus it says, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you are foreigners in Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. You can see that also in Exodus 22 and Deuteronomy 24. It's repeated. Also, there are examples of righteous, blessed, applauded intermarriage. So Moses and Zipporah. Moses is the leader of Israel when Phineas takes the spear uh, to the two people in the tent. So Moses is the leader there. Moses is married to a Midianite woman. And when he's challenged on it, when Aaron and his wife challenge on it, they get leprosy for judging Moses, and they have to be healed. Also, Ruth and Boaz, the story Ruth is considered this righteous woman of the scriptures. Uh, She's not an Israelite woman, but she marries Boaz. It was a longer story there, but it's applauded and shown to be a really good thing. Also, the same time that Ezra and Nehemiah are trying to rebuild Jerusalem, 
The prophet Isaiah writes this, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So, what you have here are these side-by-side things happening, these parallels happening. So as laws are written that discriminate against outsiders, laws are written to protect them. Protect them. As actions are taken to punish intermarriage, at the same time there are parallel examples of intermarriage that are praised. And as Israelites return from exile and they get really serious about excluding people, the prophet Isaiah prophesies that everyone will be included. And it seems that in this arena of outsiders are a blessing, the main concern is justice. So we see here a concern that all people are treated fairly and that all have the opportunity to be a part of the community of God who want it. So what gives? You confused? How can these two concerns, existence and justice, find any sort of reconciliation? Well, I'm not going to tell you this week. You have to come back. But, (laughs) so today's a day of tension. I, I told you that going in. But I will give you a hint. Just like there are hints in every good story, reasons to have hope, to sort of see where things are ultimately going. Let me give you a hint. Existence and justice do have a common ground. And the common ground is salvation. Let me tell you what I mean there. So the Israelites, the reason that they pursue exclusivity is because they're told that by this way, by this exclusive path, they're told by the prophets that they live righteous lives, that God would come to their aid. He would save them whenever they needed it. But... What they didn't expect is that sometimes he would save them through outsiders. So you have the story of Rahab. She hides the Israelite spies during a time of war and saves them and leads to a great victory for the Israelite people. Ruth, who we talked about, Ruth and Boaz. So Ruth and Boaz have a son, and his name is Obed. Anybody remember Obed? doesn't get a lot of press. But the story proudly states that Obed is the grandfather of King David, greatest king in the history of the Israelite people, who saves them again and again and again. But here's the trick. Ruth, as the grandmother of David, is so close to David in the family line that according to the law, David should not have been allowed to become king. The greatest king in the history of the nation. God is up to something here. The stories, the laws, the histories in the Old Testament, it's, it's, it's just not so simple. But somehow all of these things are converging into something magnificent. 
And what we'll see is that this all comes together in an epic way next week in the story of Jesus. But this week, live in tension. Because most of life is full of tension. And as we're going to look in the season of Advent that follows this series, there's still opportunity to experience hope, joy, love, peace, waiting in the middle of tension. So let's start to practice now. You know, Jesus prayed to his Father in heaven that his followers would be in the world, but not of the world. And he was praying that we would struggle with some of the ideas and situations and challenges that we've been looking at today. And if he prayed it, i got to think it's got to be good for us. So many times we just don't think about this at all. If it's uncomfortable, forget it. Sweep it to the side. Focus on something else. Not this week. In fact, what I'd like you to do is lean into this tension. So let's do two quick exercises. When you close your eyes again, I promise not to embarrass you. Think about your life. What are you afraid will contaminate you? I'll just give you a minute. What are you afraid will contaminate you? And once you have that pictured, how can you engage with that thing, or that person, or that topic in a loving way this week? This season of your life. Second question. Why don't you take a moment now and just ask God where you've just sort of buddied up to our culture without challenging it or asking God's opinion on the subject? What comes to mind? It's easier not to think about, it's easier just to go with the flow. Or it seems that way. What can you do to challenge yourself? to be different or distinct. Okay. So here's the thing with Jesus. And we'll see this next week. He pushes us. In the world and of the world. Wouldn't it just be easier to be out of the world? Start a compound in the backwoods of Alaska, just us. Build the perfect society. Or, in the world, forget about being distinct at all. I wouldn't want to do either, and I hope you wouldn't either. So, a little tension this week, and I hope I haven't scared you off, because I think next week you'll see how these things start to come together in a pretty magnificent way. Let's pray. Father, thank you that following you is just always full of surprises and challenges and pushes to growth 
and encouragements as we do. Um, I pray that as we dive into this question, that each week we'll just build on top of the last uh, in ways that build our faith and encourage us, inspire us, and um, tap us into how amazing you are in new ways. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, I'd like to invite our